welcome to You Know I'm Right, the podcast. I'm Jessica Dion Wright Abulela. You might know me from my other podcast, The Happy Writing Podcast, where I interview authors. But this is a new venture, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Sharon and Dale, and that's my mom and dad. Recently, we decided that this podcast would be our way to have constructive, educated, research debates, have a difference of opinion, and come together with good statistics and research to find a middle ground on the hottest topics in the world. If you do like this podcast, you can help us grow by subscribing, leaving a review, or follow us on social media. You can find us on all social media channels at I'm Right Podcast. And if you have an idea for a future debate, please send those to us at info at I'm Right Podcast. Com. That's I-M-R-I-G-H-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com. Now, since this is our first episode, let's do a quick round of introductions. Mom and dad, I'm going to let you guys go first. Hi, everyone. I'm Sharon. I'm happy to be here with you today, and we'll tell you a little bit about myself. I am the youngest of seven children but only because my twin sister beat me to the exit by 11 minutes. I married my high school sweetheart 44 years ago. I'm a mother of two, a grandmother of two beautiful children, age two and four, plus a grand dog charmingly named Ramona Lisa. Growing up, I wasn't encouraged to seek a higher education. I was always told I wasn't college material and was directed towards secretarial roles and more administrative tasks. I'm not sure why. It could have been my constant reorganization of my toys or something. But after spending several years working in this capacity, I began to realize I had far more potential. So after my um, twin kept in encouraging me and my husband provided support. I applied to Indiana University School of Nursing, where I graduated with a bachelor's degree. And this was later followed by a master's in leadership development. For the last 19 years, I have worked full time for a pharmaceutical company. However, in my own time, I can be found chasing grandkids around engaged in a good book, sewing, trying my hand at watercolor, or outdoor thoroughly entranced in some form of nature. You're adorable. Hello to my fans and followers and to those of you here in this podcast for the very first time. My name is Dale Wright. I'm a 63-year-old white male, but you can call me grandpa. That's what my grandkids call me. And to them, it doesn't matter if I'm telling them the gospel truth, the truth of nothing but the truth, or some made-up story about planting Cheerios in the backyard so we can grow them a donut tree. Sometimes it's a little bit of all these things they still love. My folks come from the hills and hollers of Kentucky, that place where love, honor, and respect were taught at home until they became a way of life, where hard work and perspiration take the place of a college education. Now, the other contributors in this podcast are college-educated. They have master's degrees in various fields, and are well-versed in the needs and the preparations for presentations, such as what this podcast is. Me, on the other hand, am an alumni of that school of hard work and perspiration, and will bring my viewpoint 
from that background. That's my mom and that's my dad. And obviously that's where I get my opinions from. <laughs> my name is Jessica Dion Wright Abulela. I'm a university professor living in Munich, Germany, and I am also a book cover designer. I live with my Egyptian husband that I met in an Indian bar with our Indian street dog, Ramona, my grand dog contribution. I have a bachelor's degree in communications from Indiana. I've also studied fashion design at the Illinois Institute of Art, and I do have a master's in web content design and creation. I have lived on four continents now, currently in my fifth country that I've carried residency in, and that helps to contribute to the way that I see the world. I'm very opinionated, and the idea of doing this podcast was to have better discussions with my parents. It's parent versus child, millennial versus boomer, and a lot of different views coming into this podcast. And the one thing I found is that when we lay down our rules, respect each other, cite our sources, be aware of where our sources fall on media bias scales. We have to acknowledge if our sources lean left, if they lean right, and what their accuracy for facts are. And most importantly, to encourage positive discourse on tough issues with strong research. Today, we're discussing defunding the police. So before we go into the debate and give our sides, let's see where the U.S. as a whole stands on this issue. So in 2018, the American Public Health Association declared that police violence is a public health issue due to the fact that almost 10% of all homicides in the U.S. are committed by police. And with current events in the U.S., you know, this is a topic that we felt we should open the show with. There was a Pew poll conducted in July of this year, 2020, that showed that 42% of respondents say spending on local police should stay the same. 31% believed it should be increased. So that's 73% of those in the U.S. that want no change or to see an increase in spending. And that begs the decision of how seriously should we be opening this discussion. Um, a few other Pew numbers real quick before we open up the debate floor. 35% of Americans say that police do a good job using the right amount of force. 34% of Americans believe that police do treat racial and ethnic groups equally. 31% believe officers are held accountable for their misconduct, although those statistics have dropped 10% in overall ratings since the last Pew survey in 2016. Additionally, uh, to lay some groundwork for this discussion, two-thirds of voters in the U.S. say civilians should have the power to sue police officers and hold them accountable for misconduct. And that kind of goes against the, you know, if we're thinking of it, two-thirds of voters want to be able to hold police officers accountable, 60% of people believe police do a good job, and 72% do not want to lessen funding in any capability. So those are some general statistics to kind of bring in where America stands on the issue, and we are focusing on the U.S. for this discussion. Um, so let's open it up. I... You know, with this being our very first show, I would really like to give you guys the floor first. And I'd also like to know before we get going, if you think, well, let's say what kind of side we think the other person will be on. Do you think that I'll be for or against defunding the police? I think you're going to be for defending police. What do you think, Dad? Well, I think I think with your position where you live and where you've traveled, 
that you've heard a lot of media, a lot of bias information, and I think you will be for defunding the police also. Since you guys can't see me, I have to let you know that I rolled my eyes when you said media bias. <laughs> I don't feel it'd be fair to go on if I didn't say I rolled my eyes there. Um, so here's a tough one, Dad. I think because you have lived and retired in the UAW and are a Mason and lived in that small town with an amazing police force that has always been super respectful to everyone. I think that's going to maybe sway you a little bit and you're going to be part of that 72% that thinks everything is peachy, hunky-dory and perfect and nothing needs to change, which is, you know, okay. That's what we're here to discuss and see what we can come to together. Um, And mom, I'm kind of on the fence with you. I think you could go either way. I mean, you've called our hometown police force before when a decorative pumpkin got stolen and they had the time to find it. But I'm going to play it and say that you're going to play devil's advocate and be for defunding the police. So let's see. Let's get it going. Um, The floor is yours, guys. Take it away. Let's hear your opening thought. Well, I'll I'll go first. Uh, Since you rolled your eyes when I made my comment, just (laughs) to be clear, when you made yours, I rolled mine. So. (laughs) <laughs> We're on the same page of disagreement. Well, like I said earlier, the uh, the other two participants in this podcast, my my wife, and my daughter, are, are both college educated and and have master's degrees in their various fields of expertise. Myself, on the other hand, I'm I'm a, the alumni of the School of Hard Work and Perspiration, and will bring my viewpoints from that environment. And we talked about the topic of defunding the police. That's a, a very wide open statement. Nobody has really defined defund. When, when you hear that, or I hear that, I think they want to cut the police. They want to bring them back and handcuff them from doing what they should be doing, what they're trained to do. People you, me, society as a whole, we're all governed by laws, rules, and regulations that were created by officials at all levels of government, local, state, national, people in Washington. It's these officials that you and I elected. These laws, rules, and regulations that have been created by our elected officials are nothing more than words on paper if they're not enforceable. Then we go to who has the responsibility of enforcing these laws and regulations. It's not the people, the officials that created them or even had a chance to change them while they were in office. The People that enforce these laws, rules and regulations are a group of individuals. They're black, white, brown, yellow, a man, a woman, a gay, a straight, They've all voluntarily applied for this job. They were evaluated and somebody decided to accept them or reject them for the job. These individuals can be a small town constable, a local police officer, a county sheriff, state trooper, even a conservation officer are all considered law enforcement officers. Now, should some of these people not be in law enforcement? Absolutely, there are. 
just the sheer number of people involved in law enforcement gives a statistic of a bad apple there somewhere. And these people shouldn't wear, wear the badge. Let's look at some numbers, some statistics of people. I went to the website Statista and looked at the number of law enforcement people in the US. Now these figures were from 2018. There were 686,665 full-time law enforcement officers in the United States. According to the source, law enforcement officers are defined as individuals who regularly carry a farm firearm and official badge on their person and they have full powers of arrest whose salaries are paid from federal funds set aside specifically for sworn law enforcement. Law enforcement, particularly when it comes to officers, is a male-dominated field. Law enforcement employees can either be officers or civilians. That's something we need to remember. And federal law enforcement agencies cover a wide area of jurisdictions from the Park Service to the FBI. That's, that's a big statistic. When you think there's 686,000 full-time officers for homicides from the police where they involved in a police action where someone was killed. They identified 1,552 police homicides in 16 states. Now, if you look at the population of the U.S., there are 328,239,000 523 people based on the latest census. That rate of homicides from police to people equivalents to 0.24 per 100,000 people. That's quite a, a number of people involved in homicides, but a very, very small percentage of the population. Now, on the other hand, if we look at police officers that were killed. And the latest numbers I have are from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. In 2019, there were 49 police officers killed in the line of duty. So when a police officer comes out and he has an interaction with someone, he doesn't know whether they're gonna to talk to him, respond to him with, Yes, sir, no, ma'am, or a gun. So a police officer has a split section second to make a decision. I don't know if I, I could do that job or not. What we, we need to think about is how these police officers are trained, how they go out to society ready to face different situations. We all know that people are under stress, civilians, especially at this time where there's loss of jobs, loss of income, what they're worried about. And everybody acts and reacts differently to what they're facing. You look at somebody out there and they say, boy, you're, they're acting strange or different. We don't know what's on their mind, how they feel. But when you get back to the topic of Defunding the police, I think that would be a, a mistake.
to defund police and take away the, the tools they need to be trained to realize that there's a lot of responsibility to look at a situation in that split second and see if it's a, a mental issue or a violent issue. I think when you come down and you look at just straight bare statistics mm. and the amount of police homicides, that's still a very small percentage. But that small percentage has to be looked at. Do police have the right to kill people? In my opinion, absolutely. If the situation calls for the use of deadly force, they should use it. But we also have to remember that while they have the right in an instance to kill a person, they do not have the right to murder a person. And that is the difference. What happened in the tragic death of Mr. Floyd was a murder. And that police officer should be charged as a murder because that's what happened. In other instances where it's a killing, that was done for a reason, to protect either a civilian or the police officer. Some in law enforcement are just plain bullies with a badge. Some of the police officers have a small man syndrome and some just, knew that, just do not have the common sense needed for the position they hold or the responsibility that comes with that job. With that said, I do think the vast majority of law enforcement officers not only do a good job, <clears throat> excuse me, but are doing it for the right reason. Like Jessica said earlier, we live in a small town in half for over 30 years. I told my children growing up from the time they could understand and realize things that not all people are good. <clears throat> Life is not always fair, that there are always results to the choices that people make. I also told them when they have interactions with law enforcement to listen to the officer and comply with what they were being told. If they were treated unfairly or wrong, we could address that at a different time, but not to be a cause for something to escalate. There are bad cops, no doubt. And there are bad cops of all races, all genders, and all persuasions. And these bad cops need to be removed. They do not need to be out on the streets in a capacity where they could kill or murder civilians. We also need to remember that we the people are governed by laws, rules, and regulations. And they have to be enforced and we're putting our trust and at times our lives in the hands of these law enforcement officers. In, in a whole there's a police problem. There's a society problem, lack of respect and understanding. Sometimes there's a good foundation for it and others, it's an emotion reaction to a situation that should have never happened. One thing we have to remember with all this, once again, it's a police problem. It's not a race problem. It's a problem that needs to be addressed from the top down to where we all understand our roles and responsibilities, where we can all get along, survive, and enjoy our lives. 
And in my opinion, I think we should not defund the police. Maybe spend their budgets with a little more training. And, and that's just the opinion of a small town person. Sharon, are you ready to go? I am. This is a hot topic, defunding police. But um, it's not a new argument. It's been brought to the forefront once again after George Floyd's killing in May of 2020. But because I am a baby boomer, as you are, I recall hearing the same argument during the civil rights movement and the Vietnam anti-war protest. Nightly, our little black and white television would flash demonstrators waving signs in protest while police wielded batons. You could see the smoke rising from burning buildings and the clouds of tear gas floated above the city streets. And although I was probably around 10 years old at that time, I did not fully understand what was going on, but viewing the television, I knew I didn't want to be caught up in such a disturbance either. My parents raised me to believe the police were good guys. And actually I never questioned what I was told. I might add, I was never in a situation where I had to question it either. I knew right from wrong. I was taught it from the very beginning. Um, my mother was a very staunch German and that's all I need to say about that. That may be the key to my thinking as I do today. And interestingly enough, here I am as an older adult ready to embark on this discussion about defunding police. So compared to 1960, 2020 continues with civil unrest related to social conditions and treatment of minorities. We see both peaceful and tension-filled protests, escalations of violence, banner carrying people with um, words on these banners, abolish police, defund police, and I've even seen kill the police. I honestly believe some protesters do not recognize there is a difference between abolishing police and defunding police. We can't abolish police. That would lead to lawlessness but we can review and redirect funds that may be misappropriated. Do I think defunding the police will be easy? Oh, hell no. I think it will be very difficult because it will require a review of where funds are used. Then police training and retraining plus education, which in reality may fall into a bucket of reform costing taxpayers millions. NBC has an article. It was titled, Calls to Reform, Defund, Dismantle, and Abolish the Police Explained. It was written August 9th of 2020. And it stated, reform doesn't work. Police departments like Minneapolis have already undergone reform and police violence still happens. Now, these activists are demanding defunding. It is worth saying, I could believe using funds to better a community instead of padding the police budget may have its benefits, but I need to see a good example of this because as of today, I've not heard one nor seen one, although I'm not saying it isn't there. 
it would be interesting to fully examine how efficiently a police officer uses time within different metropolitan areas, urban areas, et cetera. Then you would have facts and potential ability to data mine for the purpose of weeding out unnecessary work. For example, a 911 call <clears throat> requesting a police officer to come to someone's house because their cat's up a tree. Or the pothole in the neighborhood has gotten too big and burst their car tires. Do you think these require a police officer? I don't. And I believe these calls should go to the Department of Transportation or Animal Welfare. But to continue this point a little further, it's not only about educating and redirecting funds, it is re-educating community leaders and the citizens who reside in these communities. I do believe in police accountability. And what happened to George Floyd was absolutely 100% not acceptable. That police officer committed murder and in that I agree with Dale. The other officers who were involved need to be held accountable for their actions as well. Why did they not stop this police officer? Did the bystanders think the officer would have a moment and say to himself, what am I doing? I need to stop. No, I think he was too far into the act. The adrenaline was flowing and emotionally there was no turning back. An article that I also found in the New York Times regarding defunding the police stated that Americans see racism as a problem and broadly support the protest viewing Mr. Floyd's death as part of a systemic problem with policing in America. The Kaiser Family Foundation poll last month stated 74% of Americans said police violence against the public was a problem and 42% called it a major one. And then Fox News polled the same question with a little bit different wording. Would people support taking money away from police departments and putting it toward mental health, housing, and other social services? And the results showed 41% of the respondents supported and 46% did not. <laughs> there were 12% of respondents who refused to provide an answer. So you see there's fluidity here in these poll results, and it shows that people could move in either direction, but I believe we need to wait and see how legislation and city county councils across America tackle police funding. Now, let's flip the coin. I'm gonna bring in the perspective of police. I found an article on the National Police Association's website about this defunding police and how it's going to lead us down a rabbit. And I quote, what would one expect by such a maneuver to defund the police, essentially erasing practitioners of protection and service? What are law-abiding citizens to do as miscreants recognize, parentheses, they already have abundant at will, opportunities to take what is yours and maybe give you a wrap across the face because of their own internalized hate, evilness, and unmitigated insecurities. Well, I have to tell you, this language caught my attention, but I also had 
a gut-wrenching experience at the fear of this actually occurring. How many of us watch the looters and others display acts of violence towards individuals, children, shop owners, all while towns burned? Having seen this in my own state capital city made me angry. And I had to ask myself, how are the police handling all of this anger clearly directed toward them? And not only the police, but any figure of authority. How can people have so much hate? And does anyone take responsibility for their own anger? Is it right to take your anger out on some unsuspecting person just because you think you have the right to do that? Are you using someone else's anger to add fuel to the fire? Are you accepting a pocket change to make someone else's life miserable for an opportunity to make yourself feel better or look good? I shake my head considering how some would answer these questions, but I'll tell you, you don't have the right to do this and it's wrong. In my book, no one has that right. Wonderful um, sides, guys. Thank you. It's good to see kind of where you're coming from. And I think it's interesting before I go into mine that I think we do share a lot of common thoughts on how money can be used. And I think we're just calling it different things, which is what we kind of hope with this podcast to see that a lot of us actually do feel the same way on a lot of subject matter. Uh, we're just calling it different things because we're not communicating well. So for this debate, my argument follows that not only do I support defunding the police as you guessed, but the reason I support defunding the police is that I believe it will help us build stronger communities, create more jobs, and increase the safety of all men and women, whether those are civilians, whether that's black, white, brown, gay, straight, transgender, whatever, and whether that is a civilian or somebody who chooses to put on a uniform as their occupation. And like dad said, I think it's really important when we're having this discussion to highlight the fact that people do choose to be police officers, whether they feel strongly called for that, whether that's family lineage or whatever. Um, being a police officer is a choice. And to form my argument, I looked at sources like the Bureau of Justice Statistics, Statista, just like you, Dad, um, mappingpoliceviolence.org. I looked at the FBI website. I also looked at Discover Policing, which talks about how people become a police officer. And I pulled some articles from the Business Insider and the Atlantic, which are both slightly left of center, but they do have uh, high factual accuracy in how they report. So they do not skew data. They simply sometimes use words that kind of push people more over towards the left. I did also try to call police departments and understandably right now they're very busy, but I wanted to talk to somebody in a police department, get their opinion and see how it would impact them before I formed my statement. And unfortunately, I was not able to do that. But if anybody listening is a police officer and does want to have that conversation on air with me as a follow up to this, um, by all means, we would definitely welcome you onto a roundtable with us. So if you're interested in that info at I'm right podcast.com. So for me, um, defunding the police is not abolishing the police. And the other thing is I don't believe in reforming police because I feel like that just puts a lot of money into an already large historical and systemic 
problem. Uh, we've seen this in Minneapolis where they did try a large reform policy already and their basis was create programs to educate and break down different biases, work on mindfulness, de-escalation training, uh, teach people how to have better interventions. And the department also specifically focused on diversification, adapting standards for force, body camera usage. All of this started in 2015 and it was a multiple, multiple million dollar program. And I think that it didn't quite work as we see. So I don't believe that reform is necessarily the best option. I think that defunding and reallocating money into different departments. And the other thing that I found made this a challenge is the US is huge. Like dad said, almost 330 million people, which is 10% of the Earth's population live within the US. And one city isn't gonna operate like another city. And while I firmly believe and for me, statistics show that race doesn't play a problem in it. For the purpose of this discussion, like we said, I want to focus outside of that and hopefully have another great discussion with you guys on that later. So when I started looking at my discussion, I felt like I had to understand how the police got started in the U.S. and where it came from and how it grew. So I read a paper called The History of Policing in the United States, put out by Dr. Gary Potter not Harry Potter, sorry, Potterheads. Um, but Dr. Potter points out that there is a very large disparity even in the initial formation of police between the North and the South. So in the North, they first started in Boston as that night watch that we all know about, where they were to warn of danger. And in the North, they were kind of disorganized, often <laughs> drunk. And, you know, they just kind of ran the city looking for bad guys in danger. And then in the South, the police were specifically formed to catch runaway slaves, return them to their owners. And that eventually evolved in the South between um, segregation and enforcing Jim Crow. The need for police forces in the US didn't really begin to grow until the 1820s when we're looking at the Industrial Revolution. And coincidentally, that Industrial Revolution is also where we see the growth of monopolies and large economic disparities within the US. So the police were very easily swayed to protect and support those that are in the highest economic margins because it benefited them the most. They don't get a benefit from protecting poor people or people that might have to steal to put food on their table. So if we take those in that history into consideration, we have to look at the evolution of police department and some of the ideas that are kind of ingrained in it from the time of beginning and even location north versus south. If we look at that mapping police violence, we see that a lot of the violence and death does occur in the southern United States. And according to the FBI, most of the police deaths that are not um, you know, civilians murdering police officers while they're on the job also happens in the southern U.S. So I found that very interesting. And just me as a person, I hate to see anybody killed or murdered um, without justice, whether that is a police officer, whether that is a civilian, whether that is any of the horrible cases happening right now, like Jacob Black, uh, who was just shot in the back seven times. And I think... We as people also need to look at where we got to where we are now. And that, according to Dr. Potter, started in the 1950s where police began to move towards this military model. And they were formed and these departments grew in the 50s with the idea that a police department achieves crime control. 
So I think we have to really spend time thinking about what we view police officers as civilians versus how they've grown and what their oath actually means to serve and protect. When a police officer's idea is that their job is to control crime, and when we as civilians look at police officers as crime control, our ideas of protection kind of get skewed a little bit. And I believe that controlling crime also equates to community pacification. And when some people are pacified and some people are targeted, that's kind of how we get into this discussion that we see now. And I believe policing in our country is a really deeply ingrained idea where certain demographics feel safe, certain demographics do not feel safe. And in the United States where all men are created equal, everyone should feel safe and supported by the police department. And we have to look at the US. We live in a society with an obscene amount of guns and it's no wonder why police officers are on the edge because anybody can have a gun. Um, the US is the 14th most violent country in the world. We're sandwiched directly between Venezuela and Uganda. And I've lived in Uganda. <laughs> so I think that we can safely say before recent events in the US, the majority of Americans believe that police officers do serve and protect. And we do believe that our criminal justice system abides by the thought that people are innocent until proven guilty. But a lot of times that's not the case. And like we've said with George Floyd, all of us have acknowledged his death was murder. You know, um, had he been arrested and gone to jail, counterfeit money is simply not eligible for the death penalty. What would we do if we defunded the police? Um, you know, I really believe that if a lawyer has to study for six years to defend the law, and if a psychologist has to study for at least six years to understand and diagnose and work with mental illness, that there's absolutely no way a police officer can study for only the six months required by most police departments in the U.S., and then be given the right to define the law, work under stress, understand mental illness, or walk into a dangerous situation and know how to de-escalate it. We have amazing police officers out there that are capable of doing this, but I think we need to take some of that funding away from guns, away from tanks, away from SWAT suits, away from building major police academies and put that back into hiring people. Um, there was a department in Ohio recently that actually got rid of some of their police officers and hired two mental health specialists who respond to mental health calls. And mental health calls, normally one quarter of those result in the death of the other person. And they saw a decrease in death simply by having mental health professionals on board in their department. And as we're talking about this, I can't help but wonder why are people afraid of putting the time in to strengthen our communities in such a way that every single citizen of America can be elevated to live their best life without fear, recourse, or prejudice. So we're on the verge of a very important election and this discussion is gonna keep coming up and keep coming up and be polarizing and dividing people. And in this time, instead of us opening up a discourse to discuss and solve this problem, looking at potential policies that are unequal across the board, Instead of looking at historical inequities within police departments or trying to figure out how to make it safe for every single citizen of America, we've become divided and we're discussing who 
not we as in us, but the country as a whole is trying to decide who deserves safe police care. And I don't think we should be deciding who deserves safe police care. I think we should be deciding and talking about how to make it safer for police and our people. I've watched body cam videos where I see it. And if a police officer was coming up to me with a gun pulled, I don't know if I, how I would react. I'd probably freeze. I don't know if I'd be able to get on the ground. And I've seen police videos where they're harassing people and arresting them for no reason. And when the person says, what am I being held for? Which the police officer then legally has to answer. They say resisting arrest. Well, you can't be resisting arrest if there's nothing to arrest you for in the first place. So like dad said, we have these bad apples, but we have to be able to weed them out. And so we have to create a safe space to get the bad apples out. In the U.S., we have schools that have no nurses to protect kids but police presence. We have schools that don't have libraries or internet, but they have a police presence. I see these videos all the time of like eight-year-old black kids that are handcuffed at school. And there are a lot of people in the U.S. who are terrified of police. And it comes from incidents like that eight-year-old girl arrested outside of school. Cities like Minneapolis, LA, and Atlanta and Detroit spend 25% of their total budget on police. Chicago and Oakland, two of the most dangerous cities in the US, statistically spend 40% of their budget on police, and yet there's high levels of violence. New York City only spent 9% of their total budget, but that was still $5 billion. In Baltimore, $1 is spent on police, where only 55 cents is spent on school, and only 5% five cents of every dollar on city job programs. And even more startling, according to labornotes.org, is only one penny is spent on mental health services and violent prevention. There are cities like Philadelphia where they're cutting their budget from creating sanitation jobs by 18 million, but increasing their police presence and funding by 14 million. And so I have to ask, where do we start? We can buy expensive military gear, but not buy PPE for healthcare providers. We have school rooms where teachers have to buy their own chalk and classroom supplies while also acting as educator, babysitter, and nurse, but they have a police presence. Oakland teachers didn't have paper. They had to petition for paper, but 40% of Oakland's budget goes to police and kids and teachers can't get paper in class. And in Chicago, teachers asked for social workers and support staff to help their students be in a healthier, mental, safe environment and to replace those police presence with educated therapists. And that request by the city of Chicago was denied. And instead, they increased funding to build a new police academy. So I think that we as citizens need to question our current laws, our behaviors as people, the behaviors of the police officers, and we need to provide opportunities for whistleblowers to have a safe space. We need to challenge the idea of brotherhood that police officers cannot report bad police officers and give them an opportunity to not protect bad apples without fearing for their job and sometimes even their lives. We also have to look at why are police resigning right now as we talk about defunding? Why do they not feel safe within their job? And I kind of feel like if a police officer doesn't feel like they can do their job without lethal force, why are they in the police force to begin with? Or what training have they had that has taught them they must use lethal force? Are they more concerned about their power than the potential to grow a better community? So closing down here, I believe that when we are discussing police brutality or form, 
or reform that many times the discussion quickly turns into who deserves to be safe in a police presence and whether or not people deserve access to a better community through reallocation of funding and better training within the police department. I think as a country, we have completely lost touch of the idea of a better overall America in favor of personal benefit and deciding who gets what services and who is worthy of what service. Uh, <clears throat> tell you that, that was quite a uh, statement that you made. Let's go back a little deeper, back to our Constitution, what we in the U.S. are bound on. And, and that's where a lot, a lot of people differ. Everything is in the U.S. is based on the Constitution, and we can't rewrite it as citizens. So we, we're bound by what it says and what it guides us by. But the Fourth Amendment protects people from unreasonable searches and seizures. How does that have to do with a man walking away from police and getting shot in the back because that police officer is mad? Well, let, let's go and, and look. If you go back to 1985, there is a Supreme Court decision. Um, it was the state of Tennessee versus Garner. The Supreme Court held that it is not better that all felony suspects die than that they escape. And thus the police use of deadly force against unarmed and non-dangerous suspects is in violation of the Fourth Amendment. That's the, the point I was trying to say that piggybacks on what you say. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Fourth Amendment says you can't shoot somebody that's walking away from you. After that decision, police departments across the United States adopted stricter policies regarding the use of deadly force, as well as providing the escalation training to their officers. Now, this was back in 1985. That's 35 years ago. There was this ruling by the Supreme Court, you know, that, that said you cannot shoot people walking away. Since that decision in 1985, the University of Northwestern found that the Garner ruling reduced police homicides by 16%. For cases where the suspect poses threat to life, it may be the officer or another civilian. And that was from a case, Graham versus Connor in 1899, held that the use of deadly force is justified. So you have one precedent set back in 1985, Tennessee versus Garner, that protects the citizen. Then you have another case, Graham versus Connor in 1989, that says the police can use deadly force. So there you have the two precedents and the two foundations that protect the citizen and in essence protect the police officer. Now the implementation of those two rulings is what needs to be discussed, trained and understood mm -hmm. for law enforcement officers. That is the weak point and what's happening today. It's not just citizens that have protection, it's also police officers, but there needs to be an understanding of when to use deadly force and when not to. And a lot of that goes back to the interaction between the individual and the police or the law enforcement officer, whoever it may be. And I think there is just a, a misunderstanding or a lack of respect, not only for police officers, but for any authority figure. 
And that goes back to your statement of having police in school. Police should be in school for two reasons. One, to protect the students from the tragedies like we've seen happen in some of these school shootings. But sometimes they're there also to protect the teachers. You know, we've seen time and time again, YouTube videos where students are unruly, hit teachers, beat them up. We, we can't have that sort of violence either. So well, there's to, a, a To go ahead. off that real quick, I, I hate to interrupt you, but what you're saying is that because one student out of 700 hits a teacher, we should deny the other 699 students access to a library or a nurse in order to protect that one? No, what, what I'm saying is, is that there is a, a problem that needs to be addressed. Now, when, when you talk about school supplies, or, there, there are funds available, federal and state, for schools, education. We need to go back and see where those funds are dispersed to, how they're used. Absolutely. So, so there, we can't just say it's, it's a problem because they don't have supplies. It's a problem because money's been appropriated mishandled, misused. To, to address your first problem, nobody needs to be shot in the back. You know, you go back to the Wild West, you know, when you had shootouts on Main Street, that was face-to-face. -face. So if you're endangered, it's got to be a face-to-face -face confrontation. If a person's walking away from a police officer or a civilian, you don't shoot them in the back, even if you were bloodied and beat up you know it's well how do we hold police officers accountable for that then if they do make that choice because so often they do get away with something like desk duty or paid leave and i think that's really driving the discussion and a lot of the frustration right now is that police officers are not held accountable when they do kill or severely hurt somebody in a preventable situation well, everybody acts different to situations. Mm -hmm. And I agree that sometimes the, the consequences should be more severe and addressed differently. I, I think the way to do that is through the, the, the system that it, that is in place to address that. It's not by protesting and rioting in the streets. That that's not the way to do it. That draws attention. Do you mean to protest? Oh, absolutely. I I agree it, and that's the voice. You know, protest mm -hmm. is a voice. Yeah. Being a union member, I fully agree with people having a voice and talking about what they don't agree with. Mm -hmm. I, I don't believe you should write. To f there are guidelines for assemble a mass of people. <clears throat> Those need to be followed also. Mm -hmm. uh, there's places you can and cannot assemble uh, based on where you're at, what activities. You, know, you don't assemble in the middle of, of a street without proper notice. But the, the first time protest, somebody throws a bottle or burns something, that's no longer a protest, that's a riot. And, and that goes back to uh, 
how I opened up with, you know, there's raw laws, regulation and guidelines. And even when you protest, that applies. Can I ask you a question about that? Sure. If you feel that those laws do not protect you, or if you've been shown that those laws do not protect you and you're fighting for change and things do get heated, is there ever a time when escalating a situation is appropriate in order to create change? Yeah, but change doesn't happen on the street. It happens in Ooh, legislation. Party. <laughs> See, we're, we're going a little bit off of the subject, but it goes back to the laws, rules, and regulation. Those are the people that we elected. The people in Washington, the people in your state, are the ones that can change the laws. What about, what about when those people pass laws that specifically disenfranchise certain levels in the community? If laws are purposely passed in order to allow things like stop and frisk, which does racially target people, do people not have a right to speak out against the effects of laws that further marginalize them? They, they do, and you do that at the ballot box. The people that are disenfranchised, like you said, or targeted, they, they make a difference at the ballot box. You, you put your voice for change by changing the people that represent you. See, it, it's a whole situation of root cause. Root cause of people assembling and having a protest is to have their voice heard because of an injustice. Now, what caused that injustice? Was it a law? Was it lack of training, misunderstanding, or just some people that are instigators? Mm -hmm. I Us. think that's kind of privileged in a way to say that if a law is passed that disenfranchises you and takes away your equal standing with other members of the U.S., that you have to wait until the next election and hope that you get enough votes to change. And the point for me, is kind of that you put pressure on lawmakers to create change while they're in office, not wait to vote them out and hope somebody else comes in. Um, I, th I think because we lived in a relatively affluent town, we had access to polling positions, but a lot of people don't. And with gerrymandering, a lot of people's voices don't count within their community. So I, I don't personally agree with that. And I think we should instead look at activating positive change when things happen. Well, and I understand that. And you can have a positive effect while people are still in office mm -hmm. by, I don't know if pressuring is the right word, but letting your concerns be known here, here in, in Indianapolis, we've had a coalition of ministers and police addressing areas of concern that are in minority neighborhoods. And it's it's had a positive effect. You know, crime has gone down. There's a better meshing, understanding, cooperation in those areas. And when you have that, 
the elected officials take note of what's going on, and that's how change starts. It, it, it starts at the base, at the root. And once that happens, if the people in power cannot understand that, then you put people in that can. There has to be almost a grassroot mm-hmm. change. Um, we, we can't, and this is something that I saw in a work environment that I was from, there was a management side and a union side. And 40 years ago, first thing they want to do was butt heads and say, it's going to be my way. Mm-hmm. And, then, and I think we're back there right now in the, in the well, U.S. It feels like that's very much where we're at, which is sad. But, but what I was going to continue is mm-hmm. as time progressed, both sides understood that we had to come to some common ground for survival. Not everybody gets their way all the time. Mm-hmm. So it, it's the same way <clears throat> here in this topic we're discussing. One side's not always right and the other side's not always wrong. Where do we find that common ground? How do we come together and say this will work or at least let's try this and see what the outcome is? There, there has to be leadership good leadership on both sides that's willing to understand and sometimes bend or give a little. So with that thought, then, if one side is... Going back to the topic of defunding the police, there there needs to be a process. Mm -hmm. I agree 100%. Yeah, there there needs to be a process of what are you going to do with money? And, And it goes back to what we talked about with funding for schooling and education, there's a, a a bunch of money somewhere. And whoever is overseeing it needs to maybe direct the funds, bring in a subject matter expert mm-hmm. for training, for realizing mental illness in some people. Because I know if, I mean, I suffer from pretty high functioning anxiety, um, I've had bouts of depression that were pretty severe. And if I was in a situation where I've never been disassociated, let me kind of, you know, say that. And I've never been in a situation where I feel like the police would need to be called, but that could happen to anybody. And if I was in that situation, I think the automatic response for somebody would be to call 911, which means that a police officer would come out. And if they did come out and I couldn't understand what they were saying or I couldn't process what they were saying, would I be dead? And I think that's a scary thought. And so how do you think, I at the core of this issue, Dad, I think that we are agreeing that money needs to be spent better. So in a way, I think if we're talking about that money needs to be spent better, that that is, in a sense, defunding in some source because it's that reallocating of funds. So how do we start? Where do we do this? And how can we even do this in the U.S. when, as we've said, it's so big and every city and state differs? How do we get that model even started or encourage people to think of it because do you think that we need more tanks and guns or do you think that we need better training should we be reactionary or should we be progressive 
Well, I don't think progressive is the right word. I think proactive. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're is right. the word right. you want to say. Uh-huh. And you talk about tank and armor. That is a reaction to where society is right now. If if you look, there are there's just a lack of respect for law and order, whether it's in your home, in your school, or out in in the world. What do you think started that? Maybe we need to look at what started. Every action has a reaction. So why do you think there's such a large disrespect right now? I I think that would be a good topic on another podcast Mm -hmm. to where, you know, we we address that. It it plays a part in police and reaction, but it you know if we stay on point with defunding, and I, I think maybe defunding is the wrong word. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shouldn't defund the police. I think what we need to do is evaluate the police, and and that would go from training to preparation to response. How do you think we get an accurate non-biased evaluation in order to take the proper steps forward? That needs to be done in a way that one sets a standard. Mm -hmm. But I don't personally want the federal government telling each state what to do. I want them to give them a guideline Mm -hmm. and let the state do what they think. Because what works in the small town of Bargersville, Indiana, is not going to be the same as what works in New York City or Los Angeles, California. But there should be a standard, a guideline that says this has to be done. This is a minimum of what is required. And there needs to be an oversight where if you're not doing that, Somebody's held accountable. That that's a lot, and that goes back to what you said. That maybe a good old boy system, but there has to be accountability for non-compliance. What do you think the most important area that should be focused on right now to create a safer overall environment for both police and for civilians? Where do you think we should even look at starting? It's like I said earlier, leadership. You you need to bring people of, and I don't want to make this a race issue, but people of color, people of. Well, the U.S. is diverse, so representation. And I only say people of color because that's where things are focused right now with um, protest and what has been an unjust situation in in several states. So we bring those leaders in and sit down with the leaders of the state and local government, the police department. And you do it in a way where it's shown to people, made available for them to see progress being made and how both sides has a stand on what they think is right and wrong. You have to start somewhere. And if you don't start with good leadership, 
that can go back to the people of concern on, on each side of the aisle. Nothing will ever happen. There, there won't be any positive change. The only thing you're going to get is more of what you have. Yeah. I think we need to work on. Can I interject here? Mom, you're here. <laughs> I am. And I've been listening to this wonderful discussion. Well, I want to hear your lovely voice. So please interject. <laughs> uh, what I'd like to say is the people that gather and really review this topic from a large scale need to be people who are very comfortable with themselves and are not in there to gain something for their name. Mm. Um, they need to be people who are passionate about the topic, have a good moral, emotional intelligence, and want to see a solution and resolution. So, um, that will be a problem finding these people because anymore, I think um, a lot of the folks that would gather at the table would do so to make that name. I think a lot of people are also scared to yes. speak up. And I, absolutely. There's a lot of people afraid that if they do speak up that they would put their life in danger. And I think and that's both, bad. Yeah, both sides. I'm sure there's a lot of police officers that feel terrified to say that they agree things need to be reallocated, just like there's community leaders who are afraid to stand up and risk their position. And I think that's sad that this fear overwhelms betterment. Mm -hmm. um, can we go back to... Um, Hold on one second, sorry. The idea of this being federally funded, I feel like that means that these police officers work for, for us and for us as society members. And I think a lot of times that's overlooked. And I don't know, what do you, what do you, it's a hard discussion to enter into because like we've acknowledged, we come from a place with a wonderful police force where I've never felt endangered and I've always looked for a police officer as help. Um, where do you think that divide has started to where people don't feel protected or supported by their police? And my other, to kind of go into that, do you think that media in terms of movies and TV shows that maybe glorify corrupt cops or, um, you know, Things like that. Do you think that plays into the how maybe police officers do do their job at all? Or absolutely, I think any time the media glorifies bad behavior over good behavior, that's where the popularity and the desire to act that way comes out. It's brought to the forefront and. Um, then you have people that emulate that. It's a bad seed. And when you plant the bad seed, it produces bad plants that produce more bad seeds. And um, what do you do? You go to the root of the problem and you chop it down. 
So um, you might have to search a little bit for that plant that's producing all of this problem. But once you find it, that's where you begin. Can we cycle back to those laws you talked about earlier, Dad? Because I feel like we didn't hit on that enough. And I think this is a big issue too, because, you know, you brought up two really important ones that are also on my list, which is Graham versus Connor and Tennessee versus Garner. And they do kind of fight against each other. And they're used a lot right now in terms of Tennessee versus Garner saying a law enforcement cannot use deadly force um, to prevent escape unless they feel under threat, which was 1985 versus Graham versus Connor four years later in 89 that says that they can. And and that that goes back to defining, I I think, the use of deadly force and when to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there you have two set rulings of when you can and when you can't. I, th- I think what happens is you have that set by a Supreme Court and then it filters down to the state level and sometimes it gets watered down and sometimes it's just a matter of who's making the decision at the local level of how the standard statues applied. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I said you know, a little bit earlier that the federal government sets the guideline and it's up to the local state or municipality to enforce that as a minimum. Mm-hmm. So those are the people that need to be held accountable is the, the state and local levels. How do we those get that? Two, Oh, sorry. No, I was just saying those are two good precedents, but the interpretation of them at the state and local level are they interpreted for what the rulings were meant to do? That's right. When you write a law, the words can be interpreted differently by different people. Mm-hmm. I run into that in my field of work, and it takes us back to the drawing board on how to word something that makes more sense. Some people will take advantage of these laws when they're made and push them in a direction they were never meant to go. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I feel the only way to combat this problem is again, back to the people that we elect into office. Are they being perhaps swayed by somebody to perform in a way that they really don't believe in are they um do they have a hidden agenda and you know these are things that we don't know the government and the underminings can be very corrupt do you guys agree that money within police is being spent the best way possible Well, it, it, it's hard to see because we're we're the general public, and all we hear are facts, figures, and statistics that one is provided by the entity you're wanting to know about, 
and two, by the media, which may be biased one way or the other. A recent article in the Urban Institute says the average spending for police for jurisdictions with more than 1 million people was 9.7% of their budget. If the jurisdiction had fewer than 50,000 people, <clears throat> that spending raised up to 16.7%. This variation was driven in large by the particular services the jurisdiction delivered. <clears throat> so if you compare police spending to all other public services, if you combine the state and local spending, it, it comes down to where the police section of state and local spending overall in 2017 was 4%. They have a graph. Uh, and once again, this is the Urban Institute uh, from an article from June 9th of 2020. It says, how much do state and local governments spend on police? It says, number one item is public welfare, about 22%. Education from kindergarten to 12th grade, about 21%. Higher education, less than 10%, maybe nine. Health and hospitals, about 9%. Highways and roads, about 6%. Police are number six on this scale of spending at about 4%. So. And that's also nationwide, which, you know, we've kind of said differs by cities. So on a nationwide scale, it looks good, but city by city might not. Absolutely. And, you know, again, that goes back to leadership. I know in our small town, mm -hmm. we, we have a small police force. You know, I personally know our police chief and had several conversations with him. And he is a, a penny pincher, I guess is the best way to say it. He wants to get the most bang for the buck. He wants our officers trained. He wants them to respond in a proper way. Now, with us being a small town, our police is backed up by the county sheriff's department. Um, and I know the, the sheriff for, for Johnson County. They have training they also have what kind of training do they do did they tell you not step by step i, I know they're doing uh, some dirt diverse uh, diversification training uh, they're doing more training on how to address situations that they may encounter countywide and I hate saying, you know, there, there's an influx of uh, of people that, that, that come in to do bad things, whether it's you know, drugs or petty theft, right. Um, and, and those are responded to in one way and domestic violence or, you know, it's when you go up to somebody's home where you've got a call that maybe a, a spouse is being mistreated, you know, that, that's got to be handled different. And there's training for 
de-escalating situations from that all the way to somebody that may be doing a, a harsher crime. When we're talking it, about training, do you think that a police officer, a high school education is the bare minimum in the U.S. that they need? Some have criminal law degrees, some don't. But if they are, say, fresh out of high school, they go through their six months of police training, and then they sit in a one-day class on de-escalation or racial bias or confirmation bias, uh, meaning that they go into a situation thinking it's bad, so they automatically look for the bad. Um, do Will a one-day training class give them the skills that they need? Is this idea that they're going through training just a Band-Aid for them to say, we're trying instead of addressing the larger issue at hand that we need stricter protocol for officers in the first place? Or stricter entry protocol, I should say. Should we have a higher prerequisite or should we have specialists in positions? I, just, um, I think the youngest police officers are the most dangerous because I am not convinced that they have the training needed to go out into the field and maybe be faced with a, a direct problem to where somebody's life is on the line. Theirs or somebody they're having the altercation with. Um, I think they're still maybe not as emotionally prepared to pull that weapon. I think um, they may be not eager, but have a greater fear for their life than a more seasoned police officer who has been in similar situations. So I know me personally, I... I do have a weapon. I have been trained to carry that weapon. And I know exactly if I pull it, I better be ready to pull the trigger. And you have to think about that. And you not only have to think about what happens when you pull the weapon from the holster, you have to be able to deal with the consequences if you pull the trigger. So, Sorry, go ahead. Um, so I think there needs to be more training with the young officers before they're even put out into the general population. But I also think there needs to be continued training. Mm -hmm. Do you think we've conditioned our officers to believe <clears throat> that they're in danger when they go to calls? And maybe that we as a society have convinced them? in a way through movies and television or whatever that their job is so dangerous that they always have to be on alert. Do you think that's maybe part of the problem too is the way that we speak about police officers and their job. And we have to acknowledge that it's a very dangerous job, but do you think we've also continued to condition them that they're always in danger and that contributes to the problem? I, I think there's, a lack of training. I don't think we send them out thinking everybody's a bad person. That's why police officers now have tasers as their first line of defense they go to. They, they don't go out there to 
to have deadly force, you know, they go out one to evaluate the situation and two to protect the public and their self. Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of this discussion has been on education and mm-hmm. training, but it also has to go back to experience. You, Sharon, and myself both entered into fields where we were rookies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I received four years of training to become a, a journeyman. Uh, cool. you know, you Can we highlight that real quick? You had four years of training to become a journeyman in the auto industry. Four years. As a machine repairman. Yeah. And I and had that training. You're not making judgment calls on anyone's life, and you had to have four years of training. Well. Let me expand on that. See, it goes back to experience. And yes, I did make decisions that could affect a person's life. Mm-hmm. When we were working on equipment, if we didn't do it safely, somebody could get hurt and hurt to a point where it, it was fatal. In my 34 years in the auto industry, I saw three people die at work for making bad decisions experience and real life hands-on kept me from having a fatal experience mm-hmm. um, and in the same time i had people that i trusted to show me how to react to different search situations how to prepare myself and evaluate what was going to happen so it was done in the proper way. I've worked on machinery where we've taken parts off that weighed 40 tons. That was a situation that if it wasn't handled right, could have been a life and death situation. The same thing happens with police, firemen, EMTs. They have basics, but they have to be put with somebody that can show them the proper way to do things, how to evaluate a situation, and how to respond. Mm-hmm. You you cannot expect a person that's had four years of training in college to do uh, fashion design or situational leadership or me to be a machine repairman to know how to react to every situation. Mm-hmm. You have to have somebody that has experienced these situations to guide you and show you what to do. Everybody has to remember that you can learn from everybody. You can either learn the right way to do something or the wrong way to do something. It's up to the individuals to have the common sense to decide what is a good way and bad way to react to a situation. And that that's my personal view from being in a situation that I could make life and death situations just by the way I worked without even having a weapon. I'd agree with that. Um, So if we go along that, that people need this experience, do you think that we should not allow rookie officers or younger officers that aren't experienced enough or that haven't been in a situation that needs to be de-escalated to have access to weaponry that could then lead to fatal force. Do you think we should have a level for how long a police officer should be on the job before they can go into a potential situation like that? I I think 
that that's a, a good starting point. Mm-hmm. The, as we would say, rookie needs to be equipped with a bulletproof vest to protect herself, mm-hmm. a taser, where if they get in a situation, they can assist a seasoned officer to subdue or de-escalate a situation. An officer can go to a firing range and practice all they want, but it's a lot different when you pull a weapon and shoot at a paper target than mm-hmm. it is when you pull a weapon and shoot something that's li- living and breathing. Yep. Um, and and that is, that's a hard decision. That's a split decision you have to make. That it is a life altering situation, whether you wound a person or kill a person. Each side has a reaction and a memory of that. Or in some cases, the families do. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that should be a last resort. And like I say, I, I think that, and I agree with you that a rookie police officer needs a little more time, needs more experience with a, a senior officer in these fields before you turn them loose with a a weapon of choice that could end in death. Mm -hmm. So let's take this discussion part and frame it towards the topic of defunding the police. We've touched on a lot of problems and a lot of areas that we think are good and a lot of areas that we think are bad. In terms of defunding the police, basically that means moving funds somehow. Do you think that needs to be done after this discussion in order to create a safer environment? Or do you think that the money being spent is done properly right now and the issue lies elsewhere? I honestly think it's a mixture of both. Mm -hmm. I think um, the funds need to be looked at. Um, And I think um, the processes for the police force with their, with their training, um, their, I don't want to say attitudes, but um, their viewpoint on, on their society place needs to be reviewed and, and maybe discussed, you know, how do they feel they fit into society? That's another question. Do they feel like they have more authority because they carry a badge? Um, or do they have the right to do more things because of that? So um, I think that's a further discussion point. You know, I'm, I want to touch on something real quick. For Jessica, where you talked about whistleblowers and people responding to the police. Mm -hmm. There was a Pew Research report back in January of 2017 where they interviewed members of police departments across the the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the subject was police officers that favor a requirement to intervene when another officer is about to use unnecessary force mm-hmm. and there again we, we go back to those two statues about 
force when you can use it and when you can't. But just through this poll, all the officers, it broke down where 15% said they shouldn't intervene, but 84 said they should. So there, there's a situation where you have more than one officer that goes out and one officer that is in contact, has an adrenaline flowing and wants to handle a situation one way. And there's another officer standing back that says, hey, I should intervene because this isn't going the correct way. Mm-hmm. And it went on and broke down um, to what they call rank and file officers where 17% said, ah, you shouldn't intervene. And once again, you had 82% that said you should. They took it a step higher to the sergeants that oversee a group of officers. 9% said, no, let it go ahead and go the way it was. 91% said intervene. So this Pew report shows that officers as a whole and their superiors says there should be intervention by another officers if they don't think the situation is being handled correctly. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is it's not happening. The police know it. Their sergeants know it. Even the administrators, 95% of them said there should be intervention. Mm-hmm. Why is an intervention happening? Yeah. So that, that, that goes back to there, there is a problem with the police not doing what they know they should. Now, as far as funding, it, it, it's hard to know how to direct those funds because, as, as, as you and I know, you can juggle statistics, numbers, figures to make them show what you want to present to people. Exactly. And, and, and that's where you have to have, once again, leadership, you know, some people from the community, some outside people. And representatives that's saying this is what we're spending the money on to see if one you're spending the money why aren't you getting the results and two maybe there needs to be somebody else in charge of where the money goes so it's and until we have some transparency yes. in what's going on we we don't know about defunding we we need to see the inner workings of the money i was just going to you're reading my mind. I was just going to say that as a society, if these places are getting paid off of our tax dollars, we should request more transparency. And maybe that's where we start is demanding the receipts, demanding to see where those in charge are spending the money, where it's going, what's happening. Um, Along those lines too, I think we both agree that it starts at the community level and we have to get grassroots innovation and programs and community leaders to join with departments. Um, I can't believe I can't remember where this was, but during the start of the protests in one city, instead of protesting, the leaders of the protests in that location had lunch with the police officers and they talked it out. I'm gonna have to Google this now and see kind of what's happened since then, but they sat down and had a good conversation and talked about how they can come together as a community. And if we wanted to encourage this to happen, what actionable steps do you think needs to happen on both sides in order to get that ball rolling? Because 
the U.S. is hurting right now. And living overseas right now, it is hard to watch the protests and the people getting hurt and the people getting more divisive on both sides and the anger and the hate and the continued violence. And sadly, I don't think there's an end in sight for a while. So how do we get it started at the grassroots, especially right now in such a polarizing time? And, and once again, I hate, Mm -hmm. I actually do not want to bring race into this. But has to right now, you know, and it it is, and it's dividing people. And until we find a common ground, whether it's the police department, education, or your neighborhood park, people are going to be upset with what's going on. So we we need to get the leaders, like say the people that feel like they're being unjustly targeted, and leaders of the police department and the local level to sit down and address these issues as adults. We we don't need any finger pointing. We need to have a real life discussion with what's going on in the areas of concern. And then those leaders need to take it back to the leaders of the areas and say, Hey, let's try this. Let's do something different. Let's not lose focus on what we want to achieve, but maybe we should try to do it in a different way to where there can be some harmony and a slow start of an understanding of what's wrong on both sides of the aisle and the best way to address it and come to an ending that has a better result than what we're having and seeing and feeling right now. I can agree with that. And I, while I do agree with you, I also think it's easy for us to say that because of how we were raised and how, we approach, you know, the world and we've not lived anywhere in the U S in a highly violent or I I guess I would say dangerous city. So I don't know how to approach it from that situation. And I think if anybody is listening that has grown up in that location or has experience within the system, you know, maybe email us as well have a round table and to let us know what that other side is like that we've never experienced in terms of this discussion. I think that would be interesting to have follow-up round tables with community members and police officers um, on this situation. Do you think that without knowing how money is spent, do you think that we do need to spend money within the police department in a different way? I mean, can we even answer that in terms of, Defunding the police, which to me means spending money in a better way. Oh, hold on, Ramona's. <laughs> she was snoring earlier. <laughs> it was so cute. Um, you know, you, you talk about defunding. Maybe the first thing you do 
is put some money towards community relations. Mm-hmm. Take some some money and allocate it to a group from the community, from the, the police, the police department, and their sole objective is to come up with a a plan to better the relationship. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the grassroots. You've got to pick an area of concern, whether it's a, a neighborhood, a street, and get some trust built on both sides. You know, we, we talked earlier about uh, some people are afraid of the police for they'll get shot. Mm-hmm. There's some police officers that say this is a bad neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And you got to be ready for violence when you get there. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Indianapolis, Germany, or some other kind. There are areas that are like that. Mm-hmm. But you have to have a starting point somewhere. And do you address the highest areas of distrust on both sides? Or do you start out here on the fringe and slowly work that way where the participants on both sides can say and see that that we're making a change, we're having an effect, and each step you take, intervene more and have more contact with the people as you approach, I guess, what could be called the epicenter of of where you want to go. Do you think it sends the wrong message then when cities like Philadelphia cut $18 million from very important city jobs and increase the police budget by almost the same amount. That goes back to leadership. Mm-hmm. I, I think. But do you think it sends the wrong message to the citizens? And no, and I think the message it sends, you, you look at what they're saying is we have situations here where we need more police presence. Um, but a police presence being more important than jobs, because if you cut jobs and people lose their jobs and lose their source of income, they're more likely to maybe have run-ins with the police or get depressed and use drugs or sell drugs or, you know, steal or rob. So don't you think that's kind of counterintuitive to say we're going to cut jobs and put people in a worse position and threaten their livelihood while increasing police in anticipation of that? Well, that can be looked at both ways. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I look at, is this the government's position for you to have a job? Yes, there are some uh, state employees, but there, there are also jobs available. It may not be what you want or what you think you deserve, but there are jobs. Um, we're, we're in a, a time, too, with this pandemic where a lot of people are hurting Mm -hmm. but you know that'll subside and there's a a bridge uh, of money that comes to people we we can't always depend on the government to provide for us well i don't think vital government jobs like sanitation is the government providing. I mean, a job like sanitation is not the same as welfare or 
socialism per se. It's a necessary job to maintain sanitation and hygiene standards. You know, I was in Cairo during the Arab Spring and there were mountains of trash everywhere because the sanitation broke down. And we're supposedly the leader of the free world and yet we're struggling over picking up trash and cutting jobs to keep our cities clean. To me, I don't think that's the same as the government taking care of you by having mandatory jobs that are needed for a developed nation. Well, and being developed and sanitation and all, and, and maybe what I said, you know, came across wrong, but that goes back to the leadership of that city and that state mm-hmm. where they appropriate funds. You know, they, they have a, a budget. It's just like, in, in your house, you have X amount of dollars coming in and you have to spend them where you think it is mostly needed and necessary. Shoes. Government does the same thing. And if they do not have money in their budget for everything that they need to provide to their citizen from sanitary to police to lights and neighborhoods, they have mismanaged their money. Yeah goes back to transparency, doesn't it? It does. Why do you know, we, we don't have access to this? Pardon? Why don't we have access to this information? Because I think the politicians and the leaders do not want the general public to know what they're doing with their money. Or we would be up in arms at their doorstep. Well, damn it. Let's get up in arms. Let's get things right. Um I think we can continue this conversation for a really long time. And I think there are definitely some follow-ups and I've made a couple invitations on the podcast for people involved in law enforcement or within marginalized communities or people that have grown up in areas where they do feel disenfranchised by the police to reach out to us and continue that conversation. Um, But I want to open it up for kind of closing statements. If there's anything you feel like you didn't get to say or any thoughts that you had that maybe got lost And I'm also curious to know if during the course of this discussion, if your original thoughts have changed in any way and what you feel like an actionable plan would be to have a better police civilian um, citizen relationship. Um, So mom and dad, what do you guys think after having this talk? I think we've had a very good discussion. Can you lean forward a little bit, mom? I think, is this better? Yeah. I think we've had a very good discussion. There's a lot of information that's come forward. Mm-hmm. And um, I've learned a few things today myself. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the hard work that we've all put into our um, development of our, of our discussions. And I feel like... I, I still maintain where I'm at. I, I don't think defund the police is the correct terminology, I think, and I don't agree in reform either. But um, we have to start somewhere, and I'm back to that grassroots city level, but I also think we need to um, really look at the communities and find out why they don't want to improve this you know why do they want to maintain an act of violence 
When you say they, do you mean everyone in the community, the community members, or those in charge of the community? The community members, the actual residents in the community who insist on maintaining a violent um, city rather than stopping it and looking at the problem from a from a different um, or in a different manner. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, there's some people. Um, there's an old saying that said, if all you know how to do is hammer, everything looks like a nail. Maybe we need to remove the hammer. Interesting. <laughs> That's a good analogy. You know, one thing I'll say during this conversation, the one thing that kept coming up again and again was where does the money go? whether it was the school system, the police department, there is a, a lack of transparency. You can go online and you can pull up budgets for towns, cities. You know, I, I've done that here in, in our small town to see who makes what. But that still doesn't tell you how the money's spent. It kind of gives you an idea of where it goes. But after it's spent, how is it used for police? It's spent for training. Well, what training did they get? It's spent for equipment. What equipment did they get? So we need to know where money is spent. We need to know what can be done to better the relationship in communities with members of law enforcement. And that's not going to be done by finger pointing. That's going to be done by people that sit down, have a civil conversation. The conversation may be heated, as most conversations are when you're trying to make a point. And change. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And once again, that has to be leaders that are willing to swallow their pride, that are willing to say, hey, maybe this was done wrong, maybe this can be done better, and who are willing to say mistakes were made and things were handled wrong. Let's work together to make a change and make this better. And until we have people that are willing to do that, we're going to have more of what we see now. And, and that's not good for for our people. And and when I say people, that's everybody. Mm-hmm. And not only does it hurt us here in our towns and city in the U.S., it hurts us across the world when people see what's going on here just because the root problem wasn't addressed. It got to a situation that is on the verge of being out of control. Mm-hmm. And s- what you see now is civil unrest will escalate higher and higher until it comes to a breaking point. And whether 
we address it or not will have a lot to do with the future that we go in. And if we do not have leadership that's willing to step up and, and address the situation, the situation will do nothing but get worse. And I agree with that. And, and um, it really bothers me to see our country in this state. I hate seeing people destroying our country. Um, it, to see it burning and being broken. And I think it, we need to acknowledge with that that there are people on both sides right now that are creating damage. We have plenty of videos that show people from both sides are instigating and damaging. So I don't want that to come across as if you're blaming a certain demographic because it is no, a no, no. all over problem. I just, you know, right. Because you guys agree with that. I want to ask you if we need to push for that transparency, if we need to get the receipts as they say in the modern world, um, would you stand and start or would you take the passive role? Like, would you be brave enough to go down to the courthouse or join a march and demand change? Or is that something that's out of your comfort zone? Because that's going to be a big question for a lot of people who might agree with us. Who's going to stand up and start that push? I would. I have no objection to joining a march as long as I felt my safety was not in danger by people who oppose me. And that's, that is the issue because what happens if you have a peaceful demonstration requesting this transparency, you get, um, there are opposers who will fight you. Mm -hmm. um, people are dying in protest right now, you know. Yes, they are. And, you know, I'm an older woman. So um, if I would fight for my country tooth and nail, because I believe in it so strongly. What? And that's, it bothers me to see what's going on. But um, yes, I would. I would. I would join a peaceful demonstration. I think everybody believes that they would fight for their country. But the problem is people are fighting for their country under their lens. And that's where we're at right now. Everybody believes that they're fighting for their country and each side believes the other side isn't. So I think discussions like this, where we need to find that middle ground and come from opposing viewpoints and really get down into the dirt and you know, figure it out are so important. Um, I... There was a lot brought out today, a lot of statistics I didn't find, a lot, you know, that I think was discussed in very good ways. And for sure, the discussion is definitely not over. It's not an easy one. The U.S. is huge. It would be hard to start. Um, it has to start somehow. And I think maybe we're kind of going on the right way that we need that transparency first. We can't take money away or reallocate money if we don't even know where it's going in the first place. So the call to action was the first step, but we have to figure it out. We can't just stand there screaming at each other to do something 
and wait for someone else to do it and not have the proper tools or the information to create action. Mm -hmm. Oh, any, is there anything else that you guys feel like you want to cover? I do. (laughs) You brought up the Donald Trump ad where he says, press one for this, press two for that, press three. I know that it, it's um, an ad that you kind of disagree with. And there are things in it that I too might not have put out there had I created the ad. <laughs> However, I think people need to take a step back and think about that. What would happen if that was truly the case? What if we defunded the police or worse, abolished them, and we had to dial 911 only to select a button to wait. But that's not what defunding the police is about, and that was my argument, that he's putting it out as if you're abolishing the police and getting rid of them. Right, but what I'm saying is, what if defunding rolled into abolishing? And what if this became a reality instead of a hypothetical situation? So we should live in fear-mongering instead of improvement? No, no, no. I'm not saying we should live in fear-mongering. But I think that um, we need to take that concept and take the reality away from it. Bring forward our discussions at local levels and maybe even begin this transparent revolution with Washington. You know, I'm going to say one final thing, Jessica, you and Sharon both brought up a Donald Trump ad. I think a lot of division here over I'm going to say the last 20 years. I'm going to broaden the range, not just the last four, the last 12, the last 20. It was from politicians. Mm-hmm. Politicians on both sides of the aisle cater to a demographic. Not just a race, not just a sex, but a demographic. Their base, as they call. And they pump them full of what they want to hear, so they'll vote for them. 100%. And until... We, as the U.S., come to where we can have three parties, an independent party. We're going to keep having it. The two parties, the Democrats, Republicans alike, have got it set up to where you have two choices. Either they're a Democrat or Republican. There is not a third independent voice. That is something we need to get away from. Washington dividing the U.S. based on demographics and a voting block. I think that's a future discussion for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. I think there's a lot we can dive into with that. Absolutely. Um, Let's put that on our list for a future podcast. Yeah. And if anyone listening has ideas for future podcasts, also please send those. We're happy. We'll put them in a jar. We'll draw a topic out. Um, if we pick yours, you know, you'll get a nice little shot out. You'll get a nice little shout out on the show. And it helps keep us fresh. You know, maybe we'll get a topic that we don't really know anything about. 
And the more we have these discussions, the more we learn, the more research we do. And we just want to encourage those listening to do the same. Okay. Well, you know, I, I think we've, we have had a great conversation. I, I think there, there are points that have been brought to the table that that opened some, you know, eyes for the three of us mm-hmm. and it, it'll, it'll spark some more discussion later. It can be rolled into future podcasts, mm-hmm. but in, in my closing, you know, I, I want to say that, that once again, my opinion was from a, a 63 year old man that, went through different life experience from a worker. You get ingrained with certain ways of life, certain understandings, plus the, the small town. And it goes back to what I said earlier when, when I introduced myself that I have more opinions than I do deep dive uh, d- discussions. But what I want everybody to remember that grandpa is always right. Oh, <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, I would say I'm always right, but uh, we'll see. We'll see as the episodes go on. So listeners, friends, family, whoever's tuning into this episode one, that is our very first.